Well, I would ask you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, as we continue our verse-by-verse exegetical series through the fourth Gospel writer in our New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Hopefully you got a bulletin when you came in, which also has an outline that you can follow along and take notes this morning. The title of my message this morning is Responses to the Redeemer. Responses to the Redeemer. If you've been here any time at all, or if you've been in any church where they preach expositionally through passages of the Bible, no doubt me or some other preacher has brought up whatever the Greek word or the Hebrew word is there in the text underneath the English translations we have. And you may have asked yourself, well, why is that? Why do you do that sometimes? And perhaps you've heard of this phrase, lost in translation. You've heard of that before? Well, there are things that can be lost in translation. Because even though we have excellent English translations, it's sometimes difficult to capture with a single English word all is meant that by the Greek or Hebrew word or context, and sometimes we'll mention those just to draw out a a further understanding of those words. Uh, Amy and I love watching British television. We have to watch it with captions on because we can't always understand their accent. But the other thing we do sometimes, or at least I do, is sometimes they'll use words that I don't know what in the world they're talking about. So I'll pause the British show and I'll open my phone and I'll look it up and I'll say, oh, that's what that word means. Interestingly, we speak English, they're speaking English, but there's a lot of things we just don't understand even though we're both speaking English. There's a lot of words that are used here in the United States that mean something completely different in England. Here's some examples. If you um, want to put your luggage in the trunk of your car, in England, you put it in the boot, right? If you're going to hire an attorney or a lawyer here in the United States, in, in England, it's a solicitor. If you're going to have your prescription filled, here we'll go to a pharmacist. There they go to the chemist. We might go on vacation. They go on holiday. You might take an elevator up to your apartment. They take a lift up to the flat, right? Here's one that I think is really interesting. We would call a public restroom just that, a public restroom. But if you're in England and you say, I need a public restroom, they'll look at you funny. What are you talking about? They call it a WC or water closet. In fact, if you type WC on your iPhone in a text message, the little emoji suggestion that pops up, guess what it is? A toilet. WC is a toilet. So I heard an interesting story or read it about this interesting story about this meaning WC a British lady was going to be traveling to the United States, and she had booked some time in a, in a park in North Carolina. And so she emailed the park manager to find out about the restroom situation, and she used the abbreviation WC. Well, this park manager had no clue what a WC was, but then he remembered just shortly away from the park, there is a nice little church called the Wayside Chapel. And he was sure that's what she was referencing in the email. So he responded to her email with this email. Dear Madam, in response to your email, I'm happy to report that we have a lovely WC located only two miles from our park. The WC can seat 200 people, all on padded seats. The WC is open for services on Sundays from 9 until 3. But people can visit during the week as they have needs. The WC is a place where people come to find relief from the pressures of the week. You can sit and read the literature that's provided. You can enjoy the organ music or just converse with those beside you. I'm sure you will enjoy the WC and I'll be happy to accompany you there. Sincerely, the manager. So if we don't understand the language or the context of the language, the meaning can be lost in translation. 
And so as we've been going through the Gospel of John, we've highlighted some of the words that John clues us in on. These are words that he uses here in the text we're studying today and really all through his Gospel account. Some of the words we've looked at already is the word word, which is the Greek word logos, and we talked about the significance that has both to a Jewish audience and a Greek audience alike. We looked at the word life, the word light. Well, today we're going to look at a couple more words that really are used throughout his gospel account. The word believe, and I've used it in the baptistry today, and also the word world, world. And so as we look at these, we're going to see how they are uh, used throughout the gospel account, but hopefully today we can get a fuller grasp on their meaning. So look with me in your Bible or on the Bible study outline at John chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. This is God's word. Hear it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, if you were with us last week, you'll remember that we ended the message looking at verse 9, and we're going to kind of use verse 9 to launch us into this next paragraph, verses 10 through 13. Verse 9, I told you last week when it says the true light is for everyone, what that means is, is it's available to everyone. It's available to all people. The light of Jesus has come regardless of who you are, Regardless of your background, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your political affiliation, the gospel of Jesus is available to everyone. However, although everyone has access to the gospel, everyone has access to the light of Jesus, everyone has access to the evidence that gives reality and truth to his nature and who he is, it does not mean that everyone's soul has been enlightened to that truth. This dim and dismal reality is seen in the balance of the passage before us today. In fact, there are really three responses to the coming of the Redeemer I want us to consider from this passage this morning. The first one is this. He is repressed by his creation. Friends, there is clear and present evidence of God in creation. Would you agree with that? There's no doubt there is an intelligent designer behind all of the order and all of the beauty that is in our world. And beyond that, the special revelation we have, which is the scripture, the word of God, the Bible, it tells us that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, is actually the agent through whom the grand designer created all that exists. Jesus is the agent of creation. In fact, notice how John, his best friend, put it again in verse 10. It says, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. This knowledge, this evidence, this obvious reality, again, is all around us. And we're coming to one of the words I want us to consider today, that word world, world. We'll come back to this again and again throughout the Gospel of John. In fact, this word in Greek is the Greek word cosmos, cosmos. It's used 188 times in our New Testament, but of those 188 times, 104 of those uses are actually by John himself. So the bulk of the use of this word cosmos is by the Apostle 
John. Now, what is cosmos referred to? Well, it refers to one, the physical universe, all that exists. Some of you are probably old enough to remember the PBS show with Carl Sagan, right? Anybody remember the show? Cosmos. The Cosmos, right? So I used to watch that show, and he was uh, obviously an atheist, and it's been followed up now with a new iteration with uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, I think. And so we understand this term cosmos means all the universe, all the created order. And this is simply reiterating what Jesus is and who Jesus is that John said in verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's pretty all-inclusive. If it's been made, if it exists, if it's there, Jesus is the one who made it. But the amazing thing about what John says here is that the creator, Jesus, entered his creation. The God of the universe who created all that exists came into the very world he created. Most of you have probably heard of this famous author, Stephen King. He's an American author who's most famously known for writing in the genre of horror, horror. And so many of his books have actually been turned into movies and TV shows. Interestingly, Stephen King often makes cameo appearances in the movies that are based off of his books. And so those who are fans of this eccentric author often play kind of like a Where's Waldo when they go see one of his films. Where's Stephen King going to pop up in a cameo appearance in this film based on his book? And so he's shown up in, in his movies as a pizza delivery guy, a lawyer on a TV ad, a short order cook, a bus driver, a cemetery caretaker, even a minister, among other things. He enters the world of horror, death, dying, and terror just like Jesus did. Jesus entered a world of horror, death, dying, and terror. But here's where the similarities end. Stephen King creates those worlds. Jesus didn't create the world that way. When Jesus created the world, he created it perfect. He created it pristine. He created it without any flaw whatsoever. But, but after sin entered the place, after sin entered the planet, a place where there was no neglect, a place where there was no abuse, a place where there was perfect justice, a place where there was no evil perpetrated from one human to another. One generation from Adam and Eve and their fateful sin, you have Cain killing Abel. And the horror show has continued throughout history. We live in a world that is warped and that is perverted from God's original design, but Jesus entered that creation. And friends, he didn't just come to make a cameo appearance. He came to give life and light to everyone. The very light that spawned all of creation in the beginning came to give life into the world. In fact, that one phrase, look at verse 10 again. It's one of the most hopeful phrases in all the Bible. He was in the world. That is hope. That is possibility. That is salvation. But then the last phrase of verse 10 may be one of the most tragic phrases in the Bible. Yet the world did not know him. But why is that? I mean, it's the creator. It's Jesus. The light of the world has come because they have repressed the knowledge of Jesus. 
And this leads really to the second way John uses this word world or cosmos. Often he refers to it as just simply the cosmos, the created order. Other times he uses the word cosmos to refer to the sinful people that inhabit this place, the ungodly people that inhabit this place. That's why in our English language we use the word worldly. Now when we say you're worldly, we're not offering it as a compliment. It's not that you're very cosmopolitan or earthy. No, that means there's some wickedness. There's evil there, worldliness. In fact, John distinguishes between this wicked world and those who have been saved out of the world in his first epistle, 1 John 2, 17, he says this, and the world is passing away along with its desires. So obviously he's not talking about the physical universe. He's talking about people with desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So when John says he came to the world and the world didn't know him, the world didn't recognize him, the world repressed the very knowledge of him, he's talking about people. He's talking about people. Because think about it. When Jesus came to the physical world, the physical world did recognize him. The wind and the waves obeyed him. This is the creator. The laws of nature bent to his will. It is against the laws of nature to feed 10,000 people with a little boy's lunch of sardines and biscuits. But the laws of nature bent to the sovereign will of its creator. He healed. He banished sickness. He raised the dead. Even the demons who were created by Jesus as angelic beings, they recognized him immediately. But the people of this world, they didn't see him. The supreme fact of history is that the world was created by him. The supreme truth of history is that he entered this world, but the supreme tragedy of history is that the world has rejected him, has repressed him, has not recognized him for who he is. Friends, I have no doubt that when Stephen King showed up on the set of one of his films to make one of his famous cameo appearances, everyone from the caterer to the cameraman knew he was on the set. Jesus shows up in his created world, and they don't recognize him. But the fact that the world did not recognize him is the very reason why he came into the world. And as far as John has described Jesus here, we've seen him as the word, he's the light, he's the life, He's the word in that he gives hearing to the spiritually blind. He's the light in that he gives sight to the spiritually blind, the spiritually deaf. He's the life. He gives life to those who are spiritually dead. But this is the tragic condition of humanity. Our creator entered his own creation, and in our sin and in our depravity, we repressed that knowledge. That leads to the second response to the Redeemer I want us to see from John's passage here. Number two, he is rejected by his people. It is a great tragedy that the light has come into the world and the world repressed the knowledge of Christ. But this is a greater tragedy. He came to his own people, and his own people didn't receive him. The apostle says just that. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So John is moving here from the general people of the world to the specific, the people of Israel. He came to his home. He came to his people. This is speaking of the Hebrews, the Jewish people. You see, all through the Old Testament, 
God refers to the Jews, to the Hebrew people, as my people. My people. All the way back in Exodus chapter 3, God is speaking to Moses through the burning bush. Notice what he says in verses 7 and 8. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And then several chapters later, God makes this promise in Exodus 19. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. This is the Jewish people. This is the Hebrew race that God is speaking this about. My people. The early 20th century American poet Robert Frost made this observation once. He said, home is the place where when you have to go there, they have to take you in. Jesus went to his home, and they didn't take him in. He went to his own people, and they rejected him. They wanted nothing to do with him. And here's the sad reality. They knew he was coming. They were given evidence. They were given truth. They were given predictions and promises and prophecies that the Messiah was coming. He came to his own people. And of all of the Jewish people, the religious leaders should be the ones who have recognized him. In fact, if you'll remember when the wise men, the magi from the east, came to see the star in Bethlehem, came to worship the Messiah who had come, they go to King Herod. Hey, we've come to worship the birth of the Messiah. And so what does King Herod do? He goes to the religious leaders, to the chief priests, to the scribes and Pharisees. Hey, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? They didn't even have to look it up. They had it memorized. Oh, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem of Judea, says in the prophet Micah. They could quote it. Listen, they knew every prophecy. They knew every promise. They knew every covenant. They knew every prediction. But yet Jesus comes up and he fulfills every single one. And they reject him. They reject him. Another way God informed people of his coming was not only through the prophecies, but also through the specific covenants throughout Old Testament history. Many covenants we know of in the Old Testament, the first one being with Adam and Eve called the Adamic covenant. And what that promise was is that from their lineage, from their birth, would come one who would crush the head of the evil one. That's a covenant God made with Adam and Eve. Then came the Abrahamic covenant. Remember that one in Genesis chapter 12? One of your seed will bless all the nations of the earth. Then came the Mosaic covenant. There's coming one who will be the great deliverer, who will deliver his people into the eternal promised land. And then comes the Davidic covenant. One of your descendants, David, will sit on your throne forever. Promise after promise, prediction after prediction, all pointing to the same person, Jesus Christ. How tragic that he came to his own people and his own people didn't even recognize him. Moses said, he's coming. David said, uh, he's coming. Solomon said, he's coming. Isaiah said, he's coming. Jeremiah said, he's coming. Zechariah said, he's coming. Micah said, he's coming. Malachi said, he's coming. He shows up, and his own people reject him. Do you know that every chapter of every book of every section of the Old Testament has one primary message? Savior is coming. The deliverer is coming. That's the whole theme of the Old Testament, that one would come. 
And some of them, not only did they not only believe it, not only did they reject it, but they decided to put him to death out of their jealousy. Think of the long history of Israel. Over and over again, they rebelled against God's law. Over and over again, God would send them prophets, and they would kill the prophets who came to speak truth to them. Is it any wonder they not only reject, but crucify and kill the very Son of God? Peter, on the day of Pentecost, summarized the Jewish rejection of their Messiah with these penetrating words. He said, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. That's Messiah, this Jesus, whom you crucified. This is an abysmal and depressing situation. The light has come into the world that he created, and the people of the world repress that knowledge. The truth of the gospel and the Messiah of the deliverer of Jesus has come to his own people, and his own people reject him so much so that they have him killed on a Roman cross. Whatever is God going to do? Whatever is God going to do with this situation? The hero has come to rescue the helpless, but the helpless want to stay in their lost and dying condition. This leads to the third and final response. He is received by the awakened. He is received by the awakened. Verse 12 begins with a conjunction. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? The conjunction, conjunction but serves to bring together two ideas that are in stark contrast with each other. Again, the conjunction but serves to bring together two ideas that are in stark contrast to each other. So verses 10 and 11 present one reality. He's rejected by the world. He's rejected by his own people. But, conjunction, junction, he's going to bring together these stark contrasting ideas. In fact, that little word but is the fulcrum upon which this whole passage turns. In fact, look at this next slide. I want to communicate this truth clearly. The world's hatred of God and Israel's rejection of the promised Messiah in no way overrules or frustrates God's plan. Isn't that good news? No matter the rejection of his own people, no matter, no matter how much they repress the knowledge of the Creator and all that's seen, it in no way overrules or frustrates God's plan. In fact, there are several things to note about this from verses 12 and 13. The first one is this. I want us to consider this universal availability. Look again at verse 12. But to all. You might want to circle that word, underline that word, highlight that word. But to all who did receive him, who believed on his name. Friends, this offer of salvation in Jesus, it is available to all. This harkens back to what we talked about in verse 9. The light came to everyone. It's available 
to all. But did you notice the required response? The necessary decision regarding Jesus that must be made. Two things, two verbs. Receive and believe. First, he must be received. What does this mean? Sometimes in the modern church world, this concept of receiving Jesus has been misconstrued, I'm afraid. You've heard the phrase, ask Jesus into your heart. And I understand the sentiment, but that's really not anywhere in the Bible. Sometimes we think of this word receive Jesus as being, okay, I open the door, I invite him in. That's what it means to receive Jesus. I just let him come on into my house. That's not what the word receive actually means. In fact, I want you to show you another gospel discipleship passage, very familiar, where Jesus uses the same word. Matthew chapter 10, verse 38 says this, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. This word translated take in Matthew 10, 38 is the exact same word John uses to describe receive. The word literally means to lay hold of, to take in order to carry it away, to capture, to gain possession. So here, it's much more than just intellectual knowledge. It's much more than just agreeing to a set of facts. Okay, I believe this, 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 and this about Jesus. I'm agreeing to these set of facts. The word receive means to wrap your arms around it and lay hold of it and never let it go. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. This right to be called children of God first is for those who receive. And then he also says, he expands on what receiving is with the next phrase, who believe in his name. Everyone who receives Jesus, lays hold of Jesus, takes Jesus, necessarily believes. And to believe in Jesus, he says, believes in his name. What does that mean? It's the totality of who he is. It's everything that he claims to be and who he claims to be and what he claims to do. Therefore, friends, it is impossible for us to believe in Jesus and separate his humanity and his deity. We must believe all of what the Bible says about Jesus. It's impossible to believe in Jesus and not accept, not affirm his saving work, his death on the cross, his burial in the tomb, his resurrection from the dead, and 40 days later, his ascension to glory. We receive and we believe in his name. But what happens to those who have received and believe? That next leads to the next thing, unmerited adoption. Unmerited adoption. He gave the right to become children of God. I see that word right there, and immediately I think of something that maybe your mind goes to as well. It's what is foundational in our nation, in the country, the United States of America, this right. And the founders of this nation and those who founded the government of our nation, they recognize, listen, government doesn't grant us rights. Did you know that? Government recognizes the rights God has granted us. I think our government needs to relearn this reality. The government does not grant our rights. They recognize God-given rights, and they protect those rights. In fact, notice what the Declaration of Independence says, those very things. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by who? Their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights and protect them, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So we say these are human rights, and the government exists for the governed 
to protect and ensure those rights. Well, let me ask you a question. What happens if you break the law? What happens if you infringe on someone else's rights? What does the government do to you? Well, they might put you in prison. Depending upon how bad you break the rights of others and you infringe on other people's rights, you might even lose your life if you take the life of someone else. If you go ask any prisoner in any jail across America, do you have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? You know what they'll say? No. <laughs> Those rights have been taken away in a very similar way. All of us by nature and all of us by choice have broken the law of God. Therefore, we have lost our rights. We've got no rights. We've got nothing, nothing to claim. This is my right as a human being. you got nothing. This is exactly why John says he gives the right. Any right to be called a child of God is not something you are inherently born with. We are not all just God's children. Only those who have been given the right by God. In fact, a few chapters later, John records these words of Jesus in John 8, 34. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. What is a slave? Somebody who has no rights. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You want to have the right to be called a child of God? You've got to abandon lawlessness and receive and believe Jesus. In other words, listen, we will either be children or we will be slaves. And the slave does not remain in the house forever, does not remain with the Lord forever. Only the children do. Therefore, what is at stake here, friends, is eternity. What is at stake here is, are you going to spend eternity in the house of God? We are not all children. And that is a real question that I hope is pressing on your heart and your mind right now. Here's the question. Am I a child of God? That is the most important question you can ask and answer today. Am I a child of God? And the only way to experience and know and be assured of eternal life is by experiencing what I'm calling here unmerited adoption. Unmerited because you can't earn it. You can't work for it. Adoption because our legal standing goes from slave to son. In fact, notice how Paul put it in Romans 8. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. As heirs, we have a legal inheritance, the inheritance of the kingdom of God. But there's a divine dilemma that John has set before us here in this passage. Do you notice it? There's this unresolved tension that John has created here. He says, in a nutshell, if you're in the world, you repress the knowledge of Jesus as creator. If you're Jewish, you reject him. But only those who receive and believe are given the right to be children of God. See the tension? Everyone rejects. Everyone rebels. Everyone represses the true knowledge of Christ. But only if you receive and believe can you be given the right to become a child of God? So what are we to do? Well, this comes around the idea that I'm saying here that we have this, that he is received by the awakened. He is received by the awakened. God does a super, supernatural work of converting grace, and that leads to the third thing, unilaterally accomplished. 
this work of conversion is unilaterally accomplished. Notice verse 13. Who were born, (laughs) not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What's John saying here? This is conversion. This is being born again. This is the new birth. This is, as, Titus, as Paul told Titus, regeneration. We'll take a deep dive into this whole concept when we get towards the end of chapter 3, which will be about mid-April. When we get there, he's going to talk to Nicodemus about you must be born again. Remember that? We're going to take a deep dive in here. But just to talk about a little bit, when describing the new birth here, in verse 13, John gives three negatives and one positive. Three negatives and one positive. He tells us three things that this new birth is not and the one thing the new birth is. And what he tells us, what is absolutely clear, is that the new birth is not what's known as synergism. If you're in organizational leadership, no doubt you've heard of this concept of synergy. You try to get your organizations to have synergy. What is that? It's synchronized energy, that all the team is on the same page. We're working in synergy together. Conversion is not synergy. It's not your energy working with God's energy. Conversion is monergism. It is unilaterally accomplished by the power of God. And he tells us three negatives that the new birth is not. First of all, he says those who receive and believe and are thereby granted the right to be called a child again, for a child of God. Number one, they are not born of blood. Well, what does this mean? Doesn't matter who your family is. Doesn't matter about your mama's faith. Doesn't matter if your granddaddy's a deacon down in that church. Doesn't matter if, oh yeah, 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 I got friends who are down in that church. Oh yeah, my name's on the roll. Doesn't matter about your lineage. Even if you can trace your ancestry all the way back to Abraham, which is part of what John's saying here in the first century, people who are children of God, doesn't matter about your blood. Doesn't matter about your family. The second negative here is the fact that we're not born of the will of the flesh. What is that? The flesh refers to our own personal desires, our inner impulses, and unfortunately because of our sin nature, we cannot pull ourselves up by our own spiritual bootstraps and make ourselves good enough to be acceptable to God. We're not born of blood. We're not born of the will of our own flesh. Thirdly, he says, you're not born of the will of man. As I studied that phrase, here's what I believe John is getting to. Man-made systems. In the first century, the Jews had all these man-made systems. There was Pharisaical Judaism that you had all these rules and regulations and precepts on top of the law of God that you had to follow to a T. If you didn't, you're out. Today, we have the same type of iterations, even from some biblical forms of Christianity. There are cults and false religions who all say, you got to complete these steps. You got to follow this list. You got to do these rules and not do these things, and then you can get in. But do you know what I think is probably the most popular and no doubt the most prevalent man-made system of how you can be accepted by God? It's when someone says something like this. You know, as long as you're sincere in what you believe, so long as, as you do good to other people, when you go to Cracker Barrel, you open the door and let somebody go in front of you, those kind of things, well, then at the end, you're going to be just fine. 
I'll tell you, one of the most difficult things I do as a pastor is preach a funeral for someone who gave no indication of receiving and believing in Jesus. But every time I'm asked to do it, I jump at the opportunity. You know why? Because a funeral is a unique opportunity for everybody there to be face-to-face with their own mortality. And as they consider the fact we're all going to die, I preach the gospel. There's one occasion that I was asked by a funeral home director in East Brainerd, Troy, I got somebody who died, and I don't have anybody preach the funeral. Can you come preach it? I jumped at the opportunity. I did what I always do when I preach a funeral for somebody I don't know. I go and talk to the family. I interview them. I make calls just so I can honor them in their death. And so I'm preaching this funeral for a lady that I don't know at a graveside uh, with about 50 people there gathered around. And as I closed that service, I proclaimed the gospel. I committed her body to the earth. I quoted the 23rd Psalm, and then I prayed and said amen. As soon as I said amen, this fella in the back said, I'd like to say something. Okay. Nana never did nothing wrong to nobody. And I think when she showed up at the pearly gates, Papa was right there to greet her, probably had a cigarette in his mouth, saying, where you been, woman? I said, thank you, you're dismissed. (laughs) Nana never did nothing wrong to nobody. If you can get over the double, triple negatives in that sentence, I think you know what he meant. She was a good person. Papa's there too, still smoking. That's a man-made system. You will not get to heaven on your goodness. You will not make it to the pearly gates on your old sense of righteousness. Only by receiving and believing in Jesus alone. We're not born again by the will of some man-made system. If your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. We're not born again by the will of the flesh, pulling yourself up by your own spiritual bootstraps. You're not born again by the will of the blood, that you're in the right family, have the right bloodline. bloodline. Your mama's going to church. You're only born again, he says, born of God. Born, not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of man, but born of God. You must be Born again. Friends, that is converting grace. Jesus came into this earth as the light of the world, and the world chose to live in darkness. Jesus came to his own people with all the proof of the prophecies and predictions, and his own people rejected him so much so that they had him killed. But to all who receive and believe in his name, he gives the right to become a child of God. By his sovereign grace, the right to become a child of God. And that leads to my last thought. What is your answer to this question? Am I a child of God? So we move to a time of response. If you don't know the answer to that, or if you're uncertain about that, I'll be here at the front. Some of our elders will be here as well. We'd love to talk to you about that here, or you can meet with me this week 
Let's get that settled this week.